How to make a pimento cheese sandwich. Buy yourself some pimento cheese and some white bread. You take two slices of bread and you spread the correct amount of cheese, like so. Then you close and you're done. Congratulations. Welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim. And now, here he is. Oh, wait a second. Houston, we have a problem. Ladies and gentlemen, today there is no Teal. That's right. He is on assignment helping the Vice President, Mike Pence, battle the coronavirus. Teal is MIA. Sorry about that. Uh, sometimes this happens. Well, okay, it hasn't happened, but uh, frequently we try to do this program and Teal is not available. He's off on an assignment or doing something. Um, but it's been a few weeks. Uh, we had a little February vacation in the mix. I was in California. Uh, mentioned on the program before, I was visiting my grandmother who turned 100. She made it and uh, got to see her, and she got to see uh, all the grandkids and all the great-grandkids all together in one room. So that was pretty cool. Um, today, it's going to probably be a shorter episode because I'm going to be talking just to you, and there'll be no uh, deal to uh, chime in and also uh, share his thoughts on things. So uh, rather than no episode for who knows when, uh, hopefully we get him back soon thought we'd just chat about uh, some of the things going on. Uh, maybe talk about television a little bit. Uh, we don't get the chance to talk about TV very often, but, you know, it's stuff that I've seen. Uh, so one of the things that shows that I really like is Better Call Saul, and that's back uh, for its fifth season, and there's going to be one more after that. It's a prequel to Breaking Bad, which uh, most people have seen. Uh, the interesting thing about Better Call Saul is I was not an early adopter of Breaking Bad, and I didn't even see a single episode during its initial run. Um, I was very focused on Mad Men, and I think that it came on after Mad Men, but I just didn't pay much attention to it. And so uh, it was something I always wanted to watch, but it just was something that, I don't know, it didn't have enough time. I had like a little baby at the time and uh, then a second child, so I missed it. And even though uh, everybody told my wife and I, you got to see it, you got to see it, we didn't watch it. But... When I heard that they were making a sort of prequel show about one other character that I'd heard about, uh, this guy Saul Goodman, played by Bob Odenkirk, I said, well, you know what? Maybe this is a good way for me to get into Breaking Bad. I'll watch this show, right? Maybe it'll be good. So I started to watch uh, Better Call Saul from the very first episode, the night it premiered. And it was a little slow going, you know, but I was interested. I thought this was an interesting character. But here was the fascinating thing. Having never watched Breaking Bad, 
all the things that were going on in Better Call Saul really intrigued me. And at some point I figured, well, some of these characters must come into play with Breaking Bad. I didn't know enough about the show. I really didn't know. So there were uh, plot lines I was very, very interested in and other characters and maybe some uh, Easter eggs that I didn't pick up on at all. Um, So, for instance, they really go into this character, Mike Ehrmantraut, and I thought he was a great, great character. Uh, played by Jonathan Banks, character actor for years. Uh, he used to show up a lot in the 80s as kind of a bad guy. Like he was, uh, you know, a bad guy in Beverly Hills Cop. And then he was a cop in uh, 48 Hours. Uh, he also had like a comic role in uh, one of the Airplane movies, either Airplane 1 or 2, I can't remember. Um, so, you know, he used to pop in a lot and then you didn't see him for years. And then he gets this juicy role. I didn't know that he played the same character in Breaking Bad. Um, again, this is a prequel. It takes place a few years before Breaking Bad action. You know, if you were a fan of Breaking Bad and you never checked out uh, Better Call Saul, you, you really should. Uh, the best part is now you can get the seasons. Uh, it's either on Amazon or Netflix, one of the two. But you can always catch up, and and it's great. Uh, and also, like Breaking Bad, you can also catch up. So uh, when it came to the second season, I got through the whole first season of Better Call Saul. And at the time, my wife wasn't watching it. She watched, I think, some of the first episodes. She wasn't very interested. So she checked out, and then I watched it, and I kept on telling her how good this show was. So the second season starts, and I'm like two episodes in. And I think at this point they started to introduce more characters and plot that was going to tie into Breaking Bad, probably because they got a second season, so they knew that they could uh, start investing and tying the story together. And I was enjoying it, but a friend of mine who knew I watched uh, Better Call Saul thought that I had seen Breaking Bad, and he made a comment to me in a text about the particular episode I just watched and said, oh, how great it was that a particular character was back. And and I said, oh, what are you talking about? And he's like, what, you've never watched Breaking Bad? And I'm like, no. And so I suddenly realized that I would be totally lost or not appreciate some of the nuances if I didn't catch up on Breaking Bad. So then my wife and I uh, took it upon ourselves. We got into Breaking Bad, and then it became the ultimate binge. Uh, I think there's like 60 to 70 episodes, and within like uh, about six weeks, um, and there were some times where we couldn't watch for various reasons in between, we caught up in the entire uh, show. And, and Breaking Bad is just, it's an adrenaline rush. It's a great ride. There's a few moments that maybe I didn't like as much. Uh, but overall, it's a fantastic series, and it really does boast one of the all-time great acting performances by Brian Cranston. Uh, so, I mean, again, I'm not bringing you any new news here. It's just, it was fascinating as somebody who completely missed the obsession the first time around. And, I, and I'm and i usually good at shows like this. I usually get there on the first uh, try. But uh, uh, coming into it, it was like rediscovering it. It had been a few years since Breaking Bad went off the air. So if there had been any spoilers that were in the ether that I may have picked up on, you know, reading uh, like something online... I had forgotten about. So it was all pretty much a surprise to me. 
you know, I didn't know about a lot of the little things and the clues and just the clues and the, the show titles, etc. Um, I didn't know about some of the classic uh, Ryan Johnson episodes. Uh, so I got to rediscover them. And then it was cool as these characters that I'd already been seeing in Better Call Saul that they were, came into play. And at once we were finished with Breaking Bad, I made my wife catch up on Better Call Saul uh, because I said, oh, you know, you're going to you're going to love seeing uh, these characters and how they, you know, kind of started. So then she watched the whole first season and then watched the first few episodes of the second season. Then we got all caught up. So we've been fans ever since. And Better Call Saul is a much different paced show than Breaking Bad, but it's it's such great uh craftsmanship, uh, great direction and writing. And they kind of don't follow your typical hour-long format. Um, I think they're always up against the fact that they have a timeline that they're trying to race to with Breaking Bad. And I think that the first two seasons were maybe a little bit more interesting because it was a little bit less about the Breaking Bad stuff. Um, But at the same time, you were kind of impatiently waiting for uh, Bob Odenkirk's character to turn into the Saul Goodman character because, you know, he doesn't – I don't want to spoil it for if people haven't watched it. But he doesn't really start out as Saul Goodman, though Saul Goodman is there in spirit through the entire uh, show. But, you know, it's just been a great ride. Some fantastic uh, performances. This actress, uh, Rhea Seaborn, she is super in the show. And then Jonathan Banks, if you liked him in Breaking Bad, he really gets to explore his character um, and the conflicted nature of his character in Better Call Saul. So it's really a great show to check out. Um, So there's a recommendation. Uh, What else is going on? These are things that maybe, you know, we would just quickly touch upon if Teal were here. And sadly, he is not. Boo-hoo. But what can you do? You got the show must go on. It was announced, uh, and it's funny because this is when I would throw out at Teal, and he would say, "Well, I haven't heard anything about this," and it's probably true. So if he listens to this program from whatever lab he's in, you know, fighting the coronavirus, he would get this information that. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, a childhood favorite of both of ours, uh, has gone through many sequels, uh, not all of them up to snuff. Uh, I'm thinking of you, uh, Crystal Skull. I mean, that one's just sad. But uh, Spielberg and company were ready to saddle up. (laughs) I don't know what they were going to serve with uh, Harrison Ford now being, what, like 75. Um, Spielberg himself, 74, uh, to go around with like another Indiana Jones. And for whatever the reason, a couple of announcements happened. Harrison Ford recently announced that they were planning on probably starting in a couple of months. Uh, He dropped that little nugget during his press tour for whatever that uh, Call of the Wild uh, movie with the CGI dog. Haven't seen it, spoiler alert. Um, And don't plan to, spoiler alert. Uh, So he he mentioned that. So it sounds like, okay, well, I guess we're going to get maybe an Indiana Jones in 2021. Uh, Or maybe before the next Avatar movie. (laughs) Who knows when that's coming out? Though my kids are always asking because believe it or not, kids are still looking forward to Avatar. So the other day, it was just yesterday, it's announced that Spielberg is dropping out of the project. And James Mangold, uh, Ford versus Ferrari, James Mangold, is in talks to direct the film. So that's a surprise because this is kind of, you know, it's as much of Spielberg's baby as it was George Lucas's. 
And now it's, you know, is it what kind of hands is it going to be in? You know, I, I mean, again, Spielberg really dropped the ball with the last movie, but that doesn't necessarily mean he would drop the ball again. And, you know, if you're going to make a Indiana Jones movie at all, again, with Harrison Ford being 75, why even make it if Spielberg's not involved? It's a little strange, you know. I don't think the world is clamoring for another Indiana Jones film. I mean, my kids, uh, the youngest, has watched some of the first movie, and uh, the oldest has seen the first three. You know, it's one of those very uh, important parental decisions. Do you let your kids see Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull? Because <laughs> if they do, they may think less of the Indiana Jones series, kind of like I did. I mean, I'm trying to think back and there's just the excitement that I was getting another Indiana Jones movie uh, was quickly contained and then it was a sad experience from the uh, fridge, nuke the fridge, to um, Shia LaBeouf swinging uh, through trees with a bunch of apes. It was just that those two things – I couldn't reconcile. Um, also, Karen Allen hadn't been acting in a long time, and it showed. Uh, she seemed to be happy and excited to be there, but her performance wasn't the greatest. So those things, and then a hammy performance by Kate Blanchett. Uh, you know, she she can lay it on thick sometimes, but this was probably her hammiest and worst performance. So again. I haven't had any desire to show my kids the, the fourth movie. And now, I don't know. I mean, would I see a new Indiana Jones movie if it came out? Sure. But am I excited about it, <laughs> especially with Spielberg not being involved? No. Um, you know, again, I, I'm just hoping Spielberg gets back to doing something great, uh, you know, and, and I have faith in it because Scorsese shows that he can just keep – making these interesting films, even though he's approaching the twilight of his filmmaking career. Um, you know, so with Wolf of Wall Street, Silence is the one feature of uh, Scorsese's that I haven't seen. Got to catch up with that. And then, of course, The Irishman. So Spielberg, you know, he puts out – not he used to put out a movie a year, if you remember, but he has very much slowed down his pace. And West Side Story – Again, not sure why he was so attracted to doing a remake of a classic that I don't think needed to be remade. Uh, so I am intrigued by that. You know, Spielberg doing a musical. That's that's intriguing. I like when somebody stretches. Uh, we're just going to have to wait and see if he can do something fantastic with that. And then beyond that, I mean, is Indiana Jones and not doing that? Is that a sign that he's slowing down? And he may not be doing that many more projects, you know. Who knows? Maybe he just the way films are made today and the, how things have changed, they just may not uh, agree with Spielberg and he just may not be as interested. Uh, but uh, that would, you know, it, it would be the end of an era. For me as a child, Spielberg was uh, the film god. Uh, and that changed because I think as his resume has continued, you have to really look at what he's – given us and how many of those films are really great um, and then, you know, and how many of them are even really good. So it's just uh, – that's just inevitability, right? So one of the other things that we didn't get a chance to catch up on uh, with Teal and, you know, again, by the time we get back on the, on the air together, we'll have to uh, move on to other things. So Academy Awards, we last taped. It was right before the Academy Awards and then the Academy Awards come out. And there weren't a lot of surprises, uh, but 
the big news was, you know, 1917 seemed to be the clear front runner. If you've listened to this program, you know that Teal and I were not too enamored with the movie. Um, you know, I liked it for what it was. Uh, and, you know, had it not been a big acclaimed film and had I discovered it and knew nothing about it, maybe I would have found it a little bit more uh, cool. But I and I hate the word gimmick, you know. I, I don't think that's fair to say it was a gimmick. But I do feel that it was made the way it was with the one take because if you didn't go for that – there wasn't enough of an interesting story to carry you on um, because the stuff that happens along the way, it wouldn't it wouldn't be as interesting. He would have had to fill the story um, with a lot more than what we got. But the one take and then in sort of in a condensed timeline, uh, somewhat real time, that kind of allowed for a little bit more suspense. Um, and also, you know, it was great technical achievement for being able to pull off this kind of stunt. Teal, uh, he wasn't having any of it. He did not like the movie at all. So it was kind of like, oh, is this going to be another year where the Oscars are going to give us a mediocre film that we're going to forget about in a few years? But no, they had a uh, trick up their sleeve. And a lot of people must have felt the same way that uh, Teal and I did. And the tricky thing was... With the nine films that were nominated, there, there were a lot a lot of good films, uh, and a lot of people could probably have their personal favorites. So for me, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was the movie that I would have selected for Best Picture, would have also selected for Best Director, Screenplay, uh, and also uh, Cinematography, uh, because while the cinematography in 1917 was amazing from a technical standpoint – the artistry behind Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I really appreciated. Uh, Bob Richardson, he had to go out of his comfort zone and do something different than he usually does. There's some trademarks there for sure. But his task was, how do I make this film feel like a movie that might have been shot in the time period that it came out? And that is a pretty amazing feat that he was able to pull that look of the film off. And I think that, that a lot of people take that for granted and they don't understand how difficult it is. And I say it's difficult because I see, I see period pieces all the time that were set in the age of film and they don't look like the period. They certainly don't look like movies that came out. Uh, whereas this, I mean, you know, it's not 100%, but between the production design and the costumes and the cinematography, it really gives a feel like you were plopped into 1969. And, and that's just the major success of that movie. 1917, you know, it looks cool. And, you know, the, it looks like a period, the period of costumes and stuff. Um, and you're never thinking, oh, this doesn't look like 1917. It's just that, you know, it's a technical marvel um, and it's very technical and you feel the technique going on. So, you know, again, it's pretty close, but I just like the cinematography for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood more. Uh, but anyways, you know, with all of this, I think that people had to pick if they didn't want 1917 to win, they had to pick a consensus of a movie that really was good, that everybody liked and nobody seemed to dislike. And that was Parasite. And so I couldn't have been happier because even though I had it as my number three, 
it's still, it was like a super strong movie and I have no problem with it being a Best Picture winner. It's a fantastic film. And if anything, the 1917 didn't really need that award for people to go out and see it. But Parasite, because of that, more people are going to check this film out, even if it has subtitles. For a lot of people, it might be even the first movie with subtitles that they'll ever see. And that's pretty amazing. And I think it's a great entry into the world of world cinema. Uh, It's a really unique story. I mean, sure, like every story, there's some familiarity. But what I like about this film is the way it takes scenes that would be cliche in most films, but he finds ways to bring new life and twists to them. So again, when it won Best Screenplay, I thought, well, okay, that's what they want to give it to. I would have given it to Tarantino, but you know, Tarantino's won a few times. If Tarantino had never won Best Screenplay, I'm sure he would have won this year, but I was excited. Then it won Best uh, International Film and, you know, I was excited. I was like, okay, but that's probably that it for its awards. But then when the Best Director came, and when the Best Director came, I thought it was going to be Sam Mendes for 1917 because Sam Mendes also won the DGA and very few times does the Academy not match up with the DGA. It's been like seven times in the history. So, you know, odds were that Sam Mendes was going to take it. Well, lo and behold, Bong Joon-ho for Parasite. That was huge. Um, and suddenly when that happens, you're getting this feeling that, whoa, what's going to happen here? Does uh, 1917 lose Best Picture? Because at this point, if Sam Mendes had won for Best Director, I could still see the overall Academy giving Parasite the win because they just wanted that for Best Picture, but that they liked the technical merits of Sam Mendes. But once Bong Joon-ho won for Parasite, you know, now there's a little bit of suspense. And when they announced for Best Picture, Parasite, it was a great, great moment. Uh, it was historic. The only time an international film has won Best Picture. Well, if you don't count, uh, you know, British film, I guess that's now international. Uh, you know, it's the first time a foreign language subtitled movie won Best Picture. And it probably isn't going to happen anytime soon again, but maybe it will. Uh, but it was a deserved win. Uh, in many regards, especially when, you know, you had uh, easily, you could make an argument for most of those films on the list to be the best picture of the year. Maybe not uh, Ford versus Ferrari, which came very close to my top 10. It didn't make it, but I, I enjoyed it. And I certainly enjoyed it a lot more than 1917. And I enjoyed it way more than Little Women. Although, you know, I recognize there are a lot of fans of Little Women and they're probably fans of Little Women that for whatever the reasons, they felt that that should have been the best picture of the year. So you could make a case for most of the films on that list, but Parasite winning, it is definitely one year that the Academy kind of got it right. Uh, so that's the film that I probably would have talked to Teal about because that was his number one pick of the year. And now the question is, is that diminished the, the movie for him? Because uh, it's sort of like saying the movie that I liked and I felt like I discovered everybody likes. And he talked about that on the last show. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Now, kind of a cool thing that I want to mention is uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, the Somerville Davis Square Cinema. It is a host once a year to a 70-millimeter film festival. 
And I've attended every single one they've had in the last few years. Uh, not not the entire thing. It usually runs for a week, sometimes uh, over two weekends. And I can only get there for maybe, you know, a couple films. Some, some years I've gotten there for, you know, a good six to eight. Uh, and it's been a great way for me to catch up on 70 millimeter movies uh, or movies that were either shot in 70 millimeter or blown up to 70 millimeter. Uh, this was an experience that meant a lot to me growing up as a kid in the 80s, and I always viewed getting a chance to see a film in 70mm kind of a special event before all of the uh, IMAX super sounds and all the various 7.1 channel uh, surround doohickeys, uh, Dolby cinema experiences. Uh, before the age of digital, the only way that you could experience a really intense uh, sound experience in a movie was to see a film in 70 millimeter. And that was because of the size of the negative. They were able to, uh, A, blow up a standard negative for 35 that can blow it up onto this bigger piece of film. And so you could get, you know, brighter, sharper details because you're getting more light shown through the piece of film onto the screen. Uh, that's how a big cinema could show a film on a big screen. Because if you can imagine, if you're projecting a 35 millimeter film onto a huge screen, uh, usually there's a distance involved. The projector is further away. And so by the time the image hits the screen, it's going to be a little bit darker. Um, could be a lot of flicker and it could be grainier if it's blown up uh, to a big screen. So 70 millimeter allowed for you to be able to show a film bigger if that makes sense. And with the extra room on the sides, they could put magnetic uh, tracks of sound, six individual tracks, and be uncompressed. So you could hear the highs and the low frequencies. Uh, so sometimes you could just feel that sound. Um, there just wasn't anything like it. And, and I go back to these festivals that Somerville has, and some of the older prints from the 80s, they still have the magnetic strips on there. So you get that full six-track experience, and the sound is just, uh, it's not the word better. It's just different than you get in most presentations today. Again, it's about what you can feel sometimes when you can feel the low frequencies and the high frequencies. Um, so it's not exactly what you can hear, it's what you can feel. And that's that's pretty awesome. And then again, the image is just a little bit more intense. Uh, sometimes, though, I'll admit that the 80s, they got a little crazy with their 70 millimeter blowups. And depending on how they did the blowup, it, it might be a little bit uh, shabby. Uh, it's kind of like when you see a movie and on TV, and even though you have a widescreen television, they don't put the film on its uh, original aspect ratio with the black bars on top and the bottom. They blow it up to fit. That drives me nuts. But a similar thing would happen if you had a widescreen uh, film. So something that was shot scope 235, when it would go and, and be blown up into the 70 millimeter, uh, there was different ways they could do it. They could hard mat it onto the 70 millimeter and leave black bars, and then it would be matted out in the theater that would be the best way because you get a nice sharp image. But a lot of companies in the 80s, they would actually find a frame within the middle 
of the 35 millimeter that would conform in a straight blow up to the 70 millimeter aspect ratio, and they would just uh, put it up there. And what you'd get is not the full image from the 35 millimeter, but it would also be a lot grainier. Uh, a couple of years ago, I saw Witches of Eastwick in 70 millimeter, uh, and I took my son and that was the type of blow-up it was. So it was a little bit grainier, but it was also very sharp. And here the interesting thing was that the one of the reels was missing in the 70-millimeter film. And I think I, I talked about this maybe in the very beginning of our program a year ago. And the projectionist at the Somerville said that and said, you know, look, hopefully, you know, you'll still enjoy this. And when the time came, you know, you're used to watching the film one way and then suddenly it switches over to 35 millimeter for one 20 minute reel and the it was it was shocking the noticeable difference um, sure you got a little bit more in the frame but the image was so much smaller on the screen and the colors were just muddy and it wasn't as sharp and it was just eye opening how much brighter and sharper and just how much clearer you could see the details in the 70 millimeter. Uh, and that was just one of the best examples of being able to understand what the power is of 70 millimeter. Um, so this year I got to see two films that were released with 70 millimeter prints and that was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and then The Joker. And The Joker was interesting because it was a 185 film. And so when 185 films are projected on 70 millimeter, you, you're getting all that full frame and it's already a nicer sort of more of a squarish rectangle image, not um, elongated like uh, a scope. And I think it fits very well and you can project it. Um, with a huge amount of the screen. And I saw it at Somerville, and Somerville has a massive screen. I mean, it can seat 800 people. So when you have those images, and they're super sharp in 70, and it was shot in digital, which is weird because you start with a digital format, and then you're putting it onto analog at the end. And so I know the projectionist uh, at the Somerville, he kind of feels it's a little bit of a fake experience. But I don't have a problem because... It's about the feel, that magical feel that film gives you. You take a film that, uh, like The Joker, which kind of mimicked film pretty good, and then you put it on celluloid in that 70 millimeter, which it, the, the, just the way that the stock, the chemicals, and the color of particular 70 millimeter prints that they're making now, it was just awesome. It was an awesome marriage, and it just intensified. Plus, one of the cool things about today's 70 millimeter films is obviously they don't have six tracks of magnetic on the, on the strips because uh, that magnetic stuff it was turned to be toxic and so it's been outlawed. You can't you can't use it. Existing prints can keep it, but you can't put it on a new print. Um, and obviously everything's in digital, but what they do is they prepare for these seven millimeter prints. They mimic what Six Track did. They take a, a six distinct DTS digital tracks and they code them on the sides of the negative. So you get this very rich uh, experience because they know that if you're actually even showing a 70 millimeter print, you probably had a setup 
that could handle the six tracks distinctly um, in a way that you used to be able to do in the 80s. So the sound in the Joker was you almost felt like somebody had a hair dryer on your face. It was just so intense. And a similar thing happened with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. When I went and saw it a second time, saw it in New York City in 70 millimeter, there was a case where Tarantino had the blow up done where they kept the original aspect ratio. And so while not the entire uh, 70 millimeter negative was used, that's okay because you got a very nice sharp image. And while I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for the first time in 35 millimeter, it had a great film look. For whatever the reason, the 70 millimeter had it, it actually gave the experience more like you felt like you were watching a film print from the late 60s, early 70s. And it just made that experience that much more magical. The six track sound was great. Uh, just the distinction between the songs on the radio and the different sound effects. You really got to appreciate the sound design, uh, which was Academy Award nominated. Uh, so I, I really appreciated that. Um, but anyway, to get back to this uh, film festival, they just announced some of the titles that they're going to show. And it's going to be in late May. So I think it's like around May 25th, that weekend, which is Memorial Day weekend. And then it's going to stretch all the way the following week. And then it's going to end with like uh, May 29th, 30th, and 31st, that second weekend. Um, but here's what I'm really excited about. Uh, on the 29th, Friday the 29th at 10.15 p.m., they are going to show Streets of Fire in 70 millimeter. And I think I mentioned this on the program a while back that Streets of Fire is one of those films that when it came out in, uh, I think, 84, it was playing at uh, my local showcase, Woburn Cinemas. I was at the theater with my friend and we were looking for a film to see. And it occurred to my dad. Everything was sold out that night, except for Streets of Fire. And it had no appeal. It just looked stupid. I didn't want to see it. But then a year later, it comes on HBO. And it has Michael Paré in it. And just like Eddie and the Cruisers, uh, you watch this thing. And it was very addictive. And I, I kind of loved it. It's like a guilty pleasure movie. I mean, if you think about guilty pleasure, Streets of Fire, it's not a classic as far as a great movie. There's a lot of flaws in it, but it's just a guilty pleasure. The movie shouldn't exist, but it does. And I love it. And a lot of people might be, you're crazy. And that's okay. It's just, I'm allowed to have a film that I think is a hidden gem. And I always said there's certain films that are, I call my bucket list movies. And that means not that I, I, I've got to see them. I haven't seen them. It's that I haven't seen them in the theater. And so Streets of Fire is going to exist with six tracks, uh, six track uh, Dolby magnetic tracks. It's going to sound awesome. And I'm sure the crowd's going to be way into it. So I'm encouraging any of you who can get out there to the Somerville Davis Square Theater on uh, May 29th, 10:15 Friday night. Come join me. I will be there. Maybe I can find a way to get Teal out of his coronavirus duties to go there too. Uh, that will be super, super cool. Uh, one of the other titles that they're showing that I think is really cool, I wish I could see it, would be Earthquake 
the early 70s uh, sense around. I don't think it's in sense around. That doesn't exist. And Somerville would have to really outfit themselves to do sense around. But they do have a 70 millimeter print they're showing. That's just going to be during the middle of the week. I don't think I can get back to Somerville for that, unfortunately. Uh, they're other going to be showing uh, Lawrence of Arabia. That's always something great to see in 70 millimeter. They're going to show E.T. one night. And that's a blow up. And it's early 80s. Uh, could be magenta by now with the vinegar syndrome because it was before the prints came out. So that I'm not sure I would rush out to see because I don't know what I'm going to get. Um, it would be cool. The sound would be amazing. I mean, John Williams' score in uh, six track, that's probably the reason that it should be seen in 70 millimeter. Um, they're also going to do Interstellar. And then the day after Streets of Fire, and I might stay for this because my son, it's really interesting, is uh, I let him see things. And my wife and I, we watched with him the extended cut of Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight on Netflix. It's broken up into like four parts or whatever. And, you know, it's one of those things where I wasn't sure what he would think of something like that. Well, he loved it. Like, it's one of his favorite movies, it turns out. He'd never seen anything like it. And just the other day, he asked me, hey, Dad, is there any other Westerns out there that we could watch? Something like The Hateful Eight? Uh, so, you know, he, it's just interesting what a kid gets exposed to, what they might find interesting. And I think it's uh, probably for Tarantino, it's the one film that really kind of was maligned by a lot of people. And I think it's a great film. I have seen it now uh, three times. Uh, once in the theater, the first night it opened in 70 millimeter, of course. And then the second time I watched it when it was on, you know, Netflix, just wanted to see how it stacked up from the big screen, uh, you know, performance and I just wanted to concentrate on a few things and then I watched it the third time with the extended cut and I actually kind of liked the way it was broken up. Some parts I didn't like because it was broken up but others I thought it was much more interesting digestible for people who were afraid of seeing something straight three hours and 15 minutes but because it's going to be there the next day and I'm definitely going to try to drag my son to see Streets of Fire I think we would stay and watch The Hateful Eight is going to be there at the Somerville. It's like 5 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon because if you haven't seen The Hateful Eight, the way to see it is in 70 millimeter on the big screen. It's just that's where you understand the power of what Tarantino was trying to do. Um, so that's what I'm, I'm recommending. And I'm excited to find out what else Somerville uh, Theater is going to throw at us. Uh, and if I can get to any of those other screenings. So those are just things to watch out for and, uh, you know, stuff that I didn't want to kind of get pushed aside because uh, sometimes uh, when Teal and I do a show, we start thinking about what we're going to do and we talk about it. And then, you know, the show takes a life of its own and we don't always get to talk about what we want. And then after we stop taping, we're like, ah, I meant to say this and I meant to say that. So anyways, those are just a few things. Hopefully, uh, maybe next week. We'll be back with a new Teal and Jim episode, and there we will talk about our top 10 films of the decade. I'm kind of excited about that. Um, there's one film that could possibly make my top 10, and I just want to see if I can re-watch it uh, before we tape. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens there. And I'm excited to hear what Teal uh, thinks, because I think we – I saw an early list of his, and – some films we both agree on as far as our top 10 of the decade, but 
there are definitely some differences. So I'm excited to hear about his films that he liked and why, and also about the experience uh, seeing them, because I think that's really important. Uh, you know, do you see this film for the first time, you know, on demand? Do you see it in the theaters or a crowd? Like all those different things kind of make the difference. Uh, you know, like for instance, I saw 1917 in just the local theater and it didn't wow me. But what if I had seen it in IMAX? I don't know. When I saw Dunkirk, I got to see it in one of the very few theaters that was still showing IMAX 70 millimeter film and my mind was blown. It was, it was the most insane uh, IMAX presentation I've ever seen. Then uh, a week later, I got to see it a second time, and I saw, saw it in 70 millimeter at the Davis Square Theater. And the film, even though it was, shot in, you know, it was shot in 70 and it was projected in 70 millimeter, it seemed small to me. It didn't seem as um, vibrant as and exciting as it did in IMAX. Uh, and so I know a lot of other people that either saw Dunkirk just in a regular theater, saw it on TV, or saw it on the 70 millimeter, and they said to me, Jim, you're crazy. That wasn't that great a movie. Uh, but I will not forget the experience, the sound, the, the images of seeing it in that 70 millimeter IMAX uh, widescreen uh, performance. And so it does make a difference, the experience that you have with a film, but it's also a very personal one. Your, your thoughts, your feelings on movies are personal. And don't let anybody try to uh, change them. Uh, let, let you change your own mind by hearing from other people. And that sometimes happens. So what Teal and I do, we, we get on and talk about these films. And sometimes I walk away with a little bit of different appreciation for a movie because of something he said that helps me think about it differently. And, and I think vice versa, um, that I sometimes help sell a movie to him a little bit differently. Okay, so here's one last thing before we go is uh, feedback at jimandteal.com. That's the way that you can reach us. So feedback at symbol Jim and, which is A-N-D, and then T-E-A-L, T-E-A-L, dot com. Reach out to us. Hey, you know, look at I'm here solo talking to you. And that may be horrible or it may be great. I don't know. It's certainly a strange, but I thought important that we at least get an episode in there. But, you know, from time to time, Teal might be on assignment and I don't want to have uh, too many weeks go by without an episode. So maybe you want to fill in, you know, you think you're available. Uh, drop us a line. Say, hey, you know what? I have a microphone. I can get on the uh, the horn and uh, maybe we'll consider a, a special guest host uh, from time to time. Um, or, you know, also if uh, this uh, season of stuff we've seen, there's room for guests. If you have something to offer, if you want to talk about your film experiences or if maybe you're uh, somewhat involved in the film industry or uh, the exhibition of films, whatever, we will uh, consider you and we'd love to have you. Uh, so definitely uh, drop us a line. Say you're interested. Say, hey, you know what? When can we uh, do this? And believe me, we'll get you on there. All right. So, again, I apologize that uh, Teal was not available. It, uh, again, hopefully didn't dissuade you from enjoying me blabber on uh, for 40 some minutes. But I promise you he'll be back soon. I hope. <laughs> I pray <laughs> that he doesn't get the coronavirus and that he can soldier on and give his thoughts and we will be back soon. So, in the meantime, fellow movie enjoyist enthusiasts what have you uh go see some stuff 
even though there's really not a lot of good things to see right now, uh, which is why I think in the next few episodes we'll be really talking about other things, not new movies, because I, I'm just stretching to try to find something that I'm excited about seeing, and I just cannot uh, think of anything. I mean, uh, you know, Blumhouse has got that Invisible Man movie coming out. I just, uh, no, I can't. I'm not going to do it. All right. Uh, so, so long, uh, citizens, and uh, go see some stuff. Bye.